Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. First, we start with speaking of renters, speaking of tenants. If you have a place that you are renting now that you find affordable and you've got a decent place, you have got to hang on. Hang on to that place. You do not want to get evicted in this market right now. Vacancies are so low and rents have gone up a lot. How, under what circumstances is a landlord allowed to evict you from your place? Let's discuss that now with my guest, Lassa Vitvud, lawyer at the Tenant Resor- and Resource Advisory Center. Lassa, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me on, Mike. Yeah, this is a topic a lot of uh, a lot of citizens of uh, BC is very wondering about. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about legal reasons a landlord can can evict you. Okay, so let's talk first of all for for cause. Like, if what are the causes a land a legal cause that a landlord could evict you? Like, if you don't pay the rent, the the landlord can evict you, obviously, right? Right. Uh, so there's there's probably two categories of evictions, right? Like the the ones where the tenant does something bad, and the one where the landlord wants to use the property for something else. Uh, and yeah, in cause, of course, th- th- there's a lot of lot of reasons, right? The bad behavior, um, late payment of rent, uh, paying rent, um, so on. You know, damage damage to the unit, your apartment, damage to the unit. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The list is very long. Breaking the terms of the agreement. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. but it is most evictions in, in BC are actually no-fault evictions. Okay, now this is the one we want to focus on. So let's talk about the no-fault eviction. So this is a, a tenant who was evicted for reasons other than uh, for cause. So that can include landlord use of the property, right? This happened to me one time. I was Back when I was a renter, my landlord came to me and said, hey, uh, I'm moving into your your place, so you got to get out. That that's illegal, right? Or that is no, that's legal. The the landlord can do that to, if he wants to use the the suite himself. I mean, uh, it is legal, but they they do have to actually intend to do that, right? So it's not like you can't fight it, uh, right? Like sometimes you see ridiculous cases. You have like, uh, you know, you have a landlord who's living in a, you know, seven eight bedroom mansion in the West End. Claiming that they're gonna move into like a like a one studio in downtown East Side, right? It's just not believable. Um, and and so so they can't say that, but the tenants are they're not without uh, rights in that case. You can't yeah. hide it. But but it is a it is a reason you can you can evict, right? And there's sort of the two two that are sort of like uh, abused the most, right? The two that we here at Track see the most problems with is. The one that happened to you, right? Two months notice for landlords saying they want to use the property. Yeah. And then uh, if you're a corporation, you can't use that because you, you're you not a person, right? You can't move in. So if you're like Hollyburn or Plan A or something like that, you don't, you don't have the opportunity to, to move in. Uh, so you instead may say that, oh, like I'm putting a caretaker in. And right now we're seeing a lot of those two and four months evictions along the broad corridor, right? Uh, because the tenants and uh, sort of the people of uh, Vancouver fought really hard to get good tenant protections in the Broadway plan. And now landlords, before they have to honor those um, protections, they want to get the tenants out before they apply for the permits to renovate okay. on the Broadway. Okay. The caretaker one is is really interesting. And I actually spoke to a tenant on the show recently, and this had happened to him, that the landlord came to him and said, you have to move out because I'm moving a building caretaker into your into your suite. So tell me about that. So that is what what is the definition of a caretaker? That's like the, you know the person who comes in and fixes is in, in charge of like fixing the suites in the apartment in the building. Right. So there's there's usually two ways a landlord can organize their business. Right. They hire some sort of company, and that company manages a lot of their buildings and the caretaker doesn't live on site, right? Like it's just a company, they they move out when they're called. Uh, and sort of the other option is that they can have a caretaker on site 
had living in the unit, so it's a little easier for for the tenants to sort of contact and uh, be in touch with the landlord. Uh, sure. This is usually happens in in larger buildings, um, but but yeah, the, so. Technically, if there is no caretaker in the building, the landlord can do this. But we are seeing like a lot of cases where either there's like uh, I I had uh, you know I've seen cases where there are multiple empty buildings units in the suite uh, in the building, and maybe even of them are being out on Airbnb, and the landlord still uh, chooses to to evict like a low rent tenant because, as you said, like the the prices for a one bedroom. It's just uh, popped over three thousand dollars, right? The average <clears throat> offering yeah. right now. So, if a tenant has a place for a long time, paying now they're paying maybe like around thousand bucks, right? That difference is something the landlord wants to. Sure, because if you bring in a new tenant, a fresh tenancy, then the rent caps, the rent control restrictions in BC do not apply. So the landlord can charge whatever the landlord wants to charge, whatever the market can bear. So that's typically a lot, a lot of money. So you can see. You can see why a landlord might want to move a tenant out. So, do you think, therefore, that you know this caretaker provision is that being is that being abused by landlords? Oh, I mean, certainly, right? Like, why would a like in the, in the case I just mentioned, right? Why why would they choose? They have empty suites. They have suites that are Airbnb. Why are they trying to choose the the one suite that's? Uh, with a low income, like a low rent paying tenant, right? I think everyone knows why they are trying to choose that suite. Or you see um, both with two and four month notices, you see them like sending out to a lot of tenants, right? Saying to every tenant or multiple tenants in a building, we're moving them into your suite. I've seen as many as like five in one building getting it at the same time. Obviously, huh. they can't move into all of them, right? But they they just take the risk that you know maybe some tenants don't fight it, and and you know there's no penalties for for doing this, right? Uh, uh, and so what do you like, so what do you think should be done about what do you think should be done yeah. about that? Yeah, I think there's two things that should be done. Like, right, the first question is you have to ask why are the landlords doing this, right? It's because they have an economic incentive to doing so, right? They'll earn more money. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. So I think you, you have to remove that incentive. And, you know, like a lot of a uh, lot of organizations have been talking about this recently, like the BCGEU recently did like a, a conference in front of the legislative assembly in Victoria, right, where they they called for what we could call like proper rent control. Right. Like vacancy so that, control. Right. Yes, exactly. Vacancy so control. Because then the, the landlord has no reason to abuse it, right? Yeah. If they can't hike the rent, they won't do this. And secondly, um, right, we think um, you prior to 2021, right, a lot of people, the renovation became a word, right? Because it happened all the time. Oh, I'm being renovated. I'm being, but, but since the, the law changed in 2021, which was basically, okay, the landlord has to apply to the RTB for an eviction. They can't just give a notice to the tenant and then it's the tenant's job to fight it. They have to apply to the RTB to get permission to evict the tenant, sort of. Um, okay, what do you say, Lasso, what, who, what would you say to a landlord who's listening to this right now, gritting his teeth and saying, oh, hang on a second here. This government has brought in very strict rent control. They, they have hiked the maximum rent hikes over the last five years or so, uh, especially during COVID and, and afterward. And now you're telling me that you want to put, you want to expand rent control and cap the rent hikes, even with a new tenant. You're you're killing me here. Like my input costs have gone up so high for insurance, maintenance, property taxes, mortgage rates. Like you name it. So those input costs for the landlord have not been capped. And so, what would you say to that landlord? Yeah, I mean, I would say two things, right? Like one. When inflation was good, and right when when this wasn't a problem, rent still went up like across year to year, still increased by like fifteen to twenty percent, right? Like we were talking a, a dub, more than a doubling of of rent in the last decade, right? They're outpacing. Um, so the rents have definitely kept up with inflation. They they far exceeded inflation. So, um, well, I, I how is how is that how is that possible when the government has capped the maximum rent hike over the last year? Like, what was it last year? Two percent? 
this year it's two percent right but but first of all there's like vancouver has or bc in general has the highest eviction rate of uh, any province in canada mm. uh, right and every time uh, someone's evicted you can hike it up to market rent and market yeah. rent grows far far exceeding uh inflation right like the last three years market rent has gone up like i'm not I'm not 100% on this number, but we're talking something like between 15 to 20% a year per year. Okay. Uh, right. Okay. That's... Lasse, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah. No, no, tr- no problem, oh. Mike. Let's talk about a difficult economy here right now. The cost of living in Metro Vancouver. Inflation is still around there. You take a look at the input costs on the other side for people trying to run their households. Or it's food, rent, gas, mortgage rates have gone up. It's tough. If, you are a, if you're a young person in particular looking for a place to rent right now, we started the show today talking about the sky-high rents we see in Vancouver right now. Vacancy is really low, too. A lot of young people in particular taking to social media to tell their stories about just how difficult it is. Even if you've got a decent income, when you're faced with the cost of living in this city. I got David Williams standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this is a little bit of a montage from social media, young people in Vancouver here. Take a listen. I just got a good job. I start in September, but even with that job, I can't buy anything. I can't afford the rent these days. The wages are staying the same. I can't afford to move out. I'm twenty four and I'm embarrassed that I can't move out. So what am I supposed to do? Where where am I supposed to go? I'm working like three jobs right now because the cost of living, and I'm not even really saving that. I'm not saving anything really. $350,000 got you a really nice place, at least where I'm from. Now it's like you need $700,000 plus to even get a half decent home. Okay, so you're looking at the cost of living pressures there and then, well, it's Think about wages now. Wages are wages going up fast enough to keep up with the cost of living? Have a listen to Rebecca Leto here, Statistics Canada economist. Technically, prices are rising faster than wages, and so Canadians are experiencing a decline in purchasing power. Yeah, declining purchasing power. Let's discuss with David Williams now. David is the Vice President of Policy, BC Business Council. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, David, thanks for coming on today. It's Mike, great to be with you. I appreciate it a lot. So when you take a look at some of these indicators here, I know you, you keep you follow all this very closely, especially for young young people entering the workforce. What are what are you seeing in there in terms of like incomes keeping up with expenses? Well, it's it's a very difficult environment. I think those examples that you, you've shown there uh, are exactly right. You don't need to be an economist to to understand this, people are, are seeing this, they're feeling this intuitively, uh, and it is in the data. Uh, it's in, it's showing up in the data. Uh, young and aspirational Canadians and British Columbians are facing 40 years of near stagnant growth in average real incomes. Uh, there was a report by the OECD in the latter part of 2021. We wrote a report on it in December of 2021 uh, showing that Canada is, is expected to be the worst performing economy among the 38 advanced economies over not just this decade to 2030, but also the three decades after that to 2060. So four decades of the lowest growth in real per capita incomes. Uh, if you look at the near term uh, data, uh, real we've been in recession in uh, in in GDP per capita terms since 2019. Uh, nationally, uh, incomes are down about $1,000 per person or uh, just under $3,000 per household in the last uh, four years. And that's the same for, for BC. The uh, the BC government is forecasting real per capita incomes to fall by 2% next year and the year after. That, that doesn't happen very often to have consecutive years uh, of falling real incomes. Uh, so, you know, and even by 2027, the the, the pro- GDP per person is still expected to be lower than it was in 2019, uh, about half a percent lower. So this really is a lost decade uh, for Canada and BC. And the people who are going to be bearing the brunt of that uh, are going to be young people and an aspirational people trying to get ahead. Yeah, that's that's boy, that's a bleak picture. And, and when you talk about 
real income. C- can you define that for me? Like, does that mean, because I've seen some indicators that wages are starting to go up, that people are seeing a, a little bit of lift in, in wages recently. But when you talk about real income, is that like comparing it to the eroding effects of inflation? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the the wages, real wages were falling last year. So so wages were growing by less than inflation. In the right. last few months, they've been growing a little faster than inflation. But I think we have to step back from that and look at how much income is the economy generating overall. And to do that, we look at GDP or gross domestic product. Uh, and for your listeners, what that is, is the total income generated by households and businesses in Canada or in British Columbia in one year. And then we care about that on a per capita basis because that's the income that we have to share uh, across the economy uh, among households and businesses uh, to fund our our pensions, to pay our mortgages, to to pay for our groceries and raise our families. Uh, So that's essentially the economic pie that we have. And the data is very clearly showing that the data, that the economic pie is shrinking at a rate of about 2% a year. And we're actually one of the only countries in the world that has not recovered uh, from the pandemic, our real incomes are still lower than they were in 2019. There's only seven other countries that are, are like us. Um, uh, most other countries have actually improved relative to where they were in 2019. We we haven't recovered. We're still in recession, and we're expected to remain in recession in per capita income terms uh, until 2027 at the earliest. Okay, so when you say we're in a recession, do you, so you mean like? people's incomes are in a recession because the economy, like I haven't heard any official pronouncement that our, our overall economy is entered into a recession. Well, just to clarify, GDP, so the total income being generated um, yeah. is growing by about 1% a year or, you know, year over year. But 3% of that is actually population growth. It's just because mm. we've got more people here. So in total, yes, we're generating more income. So when we look at GDP on a per capita basis, again, that's the share of the economic pie that we each we each get to uh, to, to enjoy, uh, and that, you know, so that's falling by about two percent. So one minus three percent gives you minus two percent. So that's that's why I say we're in in per capita income terms we're, we're in recession. Wow. Okay. Speaking to David Williams, BC Business Council, those numbers that you mentioned, David, from the OECD with some of the long range projections here for Canada, that is some bleak, uh, those bleak projections here, especially going, how can they go out that far? Like you were talking like decades down the road, what, what kind of crystal ball they got over there? How can, how can they do that? Well, you know, our forecast is just a glimpse of a possible future. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it's sort of based on the best available information that we have. What they haven't really done anything radical. Uh, they've looked at how Canada grew, and BC very similar to the national average, by the way. So, when I, you know, so uh, you know, Canada grew by about 0.8 percent per annum in terms of real income growth between 2008 and 2020, and they're going. They're saying we're going to grow around 0.7, 0.8 percent over the next four decades. But whereas in the past that was good enough for sort of towards the back of the pack, over the next four decades, we will be dead last. We will be the very back of the pack amongst all advanced other countries, which means living standards are going uh, going to be slipping behind other countries uh, as we go along. Yeah, and it's a very different picture, I guess, when we look in past decades it always seemed like the the next generation of young people coming up always seemed to do better than their their parents. That seems to have yeah, been flipped, right. flipped around. That's right. I think that that world's really gone. We've been taking the foundations of our economy for granted. Uh, we're, we're not really very focused on uh, prosperity. I think when we look at our economic policies, uh, and so. Yeah, it's 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 a very challenging time. Uh, productivity, which is really the, the the what drives living standard improvements over time, um, that's falling outright. The the Canadian workforce is is generating no more value added or no more income uh, per hour worked uh, than it was six years ago. Yeah. Uh, so productivity has actually fallen in eleven of the past twelve quarters. Uh, so if, you know if you're generating less less income. Uh, per per uh, per hour worked over time, then obviously your living standards are going to uh, to decline, and that's yeah. that's the track we're on unless we change what, something. 
Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that because this is your area of expertise. You're the policy guy over there at the BC Business Council. What pol- what hmm. what is wrong with the policy here? Why is this happening? Well, I think step one is don't ignore the problem. Uh, at the moment, we've sort of been ignoring we've been ignoring this uh, federally and and provincially. Um, you know, the the Trudeau government, for example, uh, in, included a chart in their 2022 budget. Uh, which showed Canada dead last in the OECD uh, for growth in real GDP per person. Uh, and, and it was so alarmed that it took bold and decisive action by scrubbing any mention of the issue from its 2023 budget. Uh, that just won't do. Um, you know, we have to actually stop trying to paper over some of these structural problems uh, that we have with uh, credit growth and, 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 and government spending and so forth. Yeah, yeah our economy is not doing very well, and we actually have to turn our minds to address that. Yeah, are, are taxes too high? Is that a problem? Uh, the tax that we have a lot of taxes. Uh, you know, in BC, the top personal tax rate is the fourth highest of any North American uh, state or province. Uh, you know, so it, it's it's difficult if you want to keep young people here in the province. Um, you know, you're offering we're sort of we, we, have, we have a low productivity province and we, we can't offer much in the way of market wages. And then we also tax them very heavily. You know, so you look south of the border or you look to other jurisdictions where you can earn a higher market wage and a pay a, a lower tax rate. Uh, and that's a very attractive proposition. Yeah. So I, I just don't think that, that we, the, the, the tax policy mix, the regulatory policy mix that we've got at the moment is really uh focused on improving prosperity and and that again that is really going to be borne by young people as uh the lack of opportunities uh you know, becomes evident and, and david just to, just to sum up you, you also touched on government spending here and we hear a lot about this when we follow the sort of political debates in canada pierre Polly of the federal conservative leader he's he's be, walking around beating a bass drum on this all the time it, government is spending too much uh deficits are too too high the government spending has driven inflation he says it all the time. Do you do you agree with that? Like, do you think that government spending should be reined in, and how would that make any make things any better? It hasn't been quality spending. Uh, it, it has been too much of it. Uh, obviously, what that does is shifts all the responsibility to bring in runaway inflation to the Bank of Canada. So they 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 they're having to rein in inflation by raising interest rates, uh, which then makes, means you know mortgage holders really cop it. Uh, they really uh, are the ones bearing the brunt of having to uh, slow down demand in the economy. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that the the, the government, the federal government, has claimed that this is not actually invest. This is not uh, consumption. This is actually investment that's going to raise our real incomes over time. Right. Well, the evidence shows that real incomes are falling. Uh, so it hasn't done what they said it was going to do. Uh, it is actually consumption. It's just spending, uh, and therefore. You know, we need to turn our minds to things that are going to improve our real incomes over time. And, and we're not there yet. David, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts and analysis on this. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. I stopped going out and um, I, I, I don't even have Wi-Fi anymore. I used to live in downtown, so I moved back home. Half of my paycheck is going into like paying off the credit card. It's just ridiculous. Housing is too expensive, food is too expensive, childcare is too expensive. Yeah, there's a lot of young people uh, talking about the difficult economy here. Let's go to Mike and Langley on the open line. Hey, Mike, go ahead. Hey there. Yeah, so I teach economics, and uh, I've been doing it for 15 years, and it's, it's tough seeing the students of mine. Um, I mean, I was a millennial. I'm a millennial now, and I started in my 20s teaching this stuff. And so I could relate to them at the time, but gradually it becomes that every single one of my students you know, lives at home, and the prospect of them even renting to go to, go to university is just uh, it's out of the question and it's it's kind of it's jarring to me we focused so much on housing as the number one industry in this country it used to be manufacturing like less than 20 years ago it switched over where the number one thing became real estate and i yeah. you know, as far as i'm concerned that's the main reason because no business is going to take the gamble of trying to make something when they can just profit off of uh, becoming a landlord and the thing is a house doesn't generate you know, economic profit to any real degree. It's just going to be rent. And yeah. uh, our focus should have been on manufacturing 20 years ago, and it looks like we dropped the ball. And I don't know how we're going to recover that.
You know, they look at the, yeah. the, the rate of growth in the population. We have the highest population growth since 1957 on a percentage term. Like, it's yeah. massive, and the feds have zero culpability. I'm a Langley City Councillor, and so we're left having to pick up the pieces of what federal policy is doing to this country. Mike, thank you for a great call. And, yeah, when you take a look at the immigration targets right now, I mean, we're bringing in a ton of people, which I, which we need. I mean, we need people. We need immigration. But where are people going to live, man? We're not building enough housing here, for one thing. Doug in Surrey. Hey, Doug, go ahead. Hi, Mike. I think that we're looking at where the chickens are coming home to roost when the uh, last uh, B.C. Liberal uh, government uh, unfroze the uh, tuitions and uh, it was open season on anybody that was going to university. To uh, They were coming out of uh, out of school with their uh, up to their nose in, in debt from uh, tuition that now wasn't frozen. And they were looking to, they had to get a university degree to say go into medicine or dentistry or something like that. Well, the responsibilities of setting up an office, equipping it, hiring staff and all that, plus what the uh, bills they ran up while they were in university getting their degree, uh, it's coming home to roost. And uh, it's got to the point where places like UBC, they depend on the the people coming in from offshore. International Uh, students, yeah. All right, here we go now with all the stuff that breaks down in your home. You've heard the old saying, right? They don't make them like they used to. That is so true. In my own experience in our own home, I would say the best performing and most reliable appliances in our home, it's the old stuff. I have a fridge in my basement that's got to be, it's more than 30 years old. It is still going strong. Got a a clothes dryer. Yeah, it's more than 30 years old. It just keeps going. Does not break down. Now, you compare that to the new stuff that we buy these days. Stuff just seems to be cheaply made. It's flimsy. It breaks down, whether it's small appliances, large appliances. I've gone through, I think we've cycled through with three dishwashers here the last several years. Stuff keeps breaking down. All the time. And then when the stuff does break, it's so difficult to repair. I think they deliberately make it hard to repair the stuff. Why? So so you have to throw it out and buy another one. That's called planned obsolescence. And I've got Adam Olson standing by to discuss. There is a right to repair movement. We talked about this on yesterday's show, and we had a ton of interest from the listeners here on it. The right to repair movement. So this would be a law that would say if you are going to manufacture and sell consumer items, then you better make sure you can at least repair it when it fixes, when it when it breaks. That you sell the spare parts, that you make you make the repair manuals available for free online. Have a listen to this report here now. This is from Global News. In our disposable culture, and the brush roll and casing was worn out here. Repair shops like this one are becoming rare. You're all set. John Paravan owns Vac Shack in Ottawa and has fixed countless vacuums over the years. The older stuff is a lot better than newer products that they make because now they're making everything throw away. Yeah, they make everything just throw away. It breaks down, you throw it away. You buy a new one. Let's discuss with my guest, Adam Olson. Adam is an MLA with the BC Green Party. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Adam, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. Okay, you bet, Adam. Does this ring true for you? Like, they don't make them like they used to, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think it probably exposes, first, my age, and, and second of all, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, in addition to the the, the physical um, materials, um breaking down and, and uh, products breaking down. We have a scenario also with, uh, with uh, the, so the amount of software that uh, the products have uh, where planned obsolescence is, is even much easier with so- software updates, right? Because the older models, the older versions of the, of the phone, of the, um, you know, the, probably the most used personal electronic device is that the uh, cell phone. Uh, yeah. And um, with software updates, they can basically render older versions of that uh, product useless. And, you know, for those of us that have kids, 
those are the perfect bones to be handing down to our children, right? Because they're, yeah. they're limited in there. But, you know, so I think that we've seen this um, over the last uh, 30 years. Uh, products uh, products are designed to only last so long so that you have to be going back to the store and, and uh, consuming more. Yeah, for sure. And I've seen this in small appliances around our own home. I think I've gone through three electric kettles here in the last few years. Just They keep breaking down. And it's not just sort of small appliances, but we're talking large appliances like refrigerators, washer dryers, dishwashers. And then you start getting into things like uh, consumer electronics, like you mentioned, cell phones, laptop computers. We've heard a big outcry from farmers saying, well, what about agricultural equipment? It's difficult to repair yeah. this stuff. So it seems to be happening everywhere. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, I think that uh, the, the farming uh, business, you'd think that oh, the, the winters are the or uh, fall, late fall and, early, and winter, the time off. But that was the time that they would, you know, be repairing their own equipment. Uh, when you have a situation where a, a lot of the uh, OEMs or the original equipment manufacturers uh, are designing into their, are, are building into their designs, um, uh, they're, they're building into their designs proprietary parts or tools that then require you to go back to them. You see this in the automobile manufacturing and, and, and repair business as well. Uh, the the independent mechanic, for an example, is having a much much more difficult time accessing the the parts that need to be uh, uh, the, the parts that need to be there to you know fix the vehicle, and, and then as well in some cases proprietary tools that you only get if you're a dealer, and so yeah. certain things need to be uh, fixed by the going back to the dealership. So you know where we are. Um, uh, yeah, not only are we are we building into it, uh, are companies building into a planned obsolescence, uh, they're also building into their products uh, the requirement to go back to that manufacturer, the original manufacturer, to fix them. Yeah, for what sure, they man. They, they've just got us right where they want us here. And it's interesting, Adam, to see this right-to-repair movement kind of taking off. Now, we've seen several states in the United States have brought forward bills just this week in California. There was a right-to-repair bill in the California legislature. The federal government here in Canada, the Trudeau government, has said they're, they're studying uh, right to repair uh, potential legislation here at the federal level. And the way this would work would be kind of simple. If you're going to sell stuff, manufacture stuff, at least give people the ability to repair it when it fixes, when it, when it breaks. So make the spare parts available. Make the repair manuals available for free online. That's right. Y yesterday on the show, we talked about how so much stuff these days is also held together with, with super glue. It's almost impossible to take stuff apart when it does break so you can try and fix it. Would you support a, a bill like that? You think we need a law like that? Yeah, I think uh, absolutely. And I know that they're, you know, uh, the uh, people who are active on this uh, are working over the the uh, federal government. I think that certainly, you know, I'm I'm from a subnational jurisdiction. I'm from British Columbia, so certainly I think the provincial governments uh, need to be taking a look at what whatever pieces of this are provincial legislation, and then whatever is not, applying a significant amount of pressure uh, on the, the federal government to to make sure that uh, you know looking at this turns into action rather than just a you know a bunch of politicians in Ottawa looking at something. So because it's costing, you know, we, we've got uh, part of the inflating costs of live of, of living is that if you make an investment in that dishwasher as you were talking about earlier on and it breaks down, there's not necessarily the credit sitting there or the cash sitting there for you to be able to go and, and replace it because yeah. repairing it. And the, the other aspect of this is that sometimes the cost of repairing it because of accessibility of parts and because that part might be buried underneath, you know, just the, the, the type of time of uh, the number of hours that it's going to take to fix it, um, it makes it more costly to, to, to fix it than it does to buy a new one. And, and of course yeah. that's part of the business model as well. So making sure that the manuals are available, making sure that there are parts, making sure that they're kind of aftermarket parts so that there's other other uh, businesses that are able to to take a look at those parts and build them and and maybe provide a, uh, a, a, a you know some competition in the parts market as well. I think that certainly this will help with the increasing costs and inflating costs that are you know so many British Columbians uh, are talking to us as, as the elected officials about right now and and um, it really negatively impacting the quality of life in British Columbians. 
Yeah, for sure. Speaking to BC Green Party MLA, Adam Olson. Adam, what about the environmental cost of this? I mean, there's so much of this stuff. We've got this throwaway <laughs> culture. There, stuff breaks. You can't fix it. You throw it away. I mean, that's just bad for the environment. Ends up in the landfill a lot of times, right? Yeah, 100%. Well, I mean, yeah. those the, the two notes that I have here are under cost to consumers and cost to the planet. And, and the, yeah. you know, this is a really, really important piece because, you know, we have, uh, you know, high intensity mining, high intensity, uh, you know, manufacturing of parts and, and putting these products together and then shipping them around the world, the huge amount of, of greenhouse gases emitted and just the shipping component uh, of it, uh, you know, the, the impact of factories on, the, on their local and, and regional uh, environments. There's no doubt that uh, corporations like it, if we can just throw the item away and, and, uh, or recycle the item, and um, and then buy a new one, but uh, the cost to the environment, the cost to nature is is uh, I think we're seeing that the impacts of that uh, we're seeing the increasing costs of, of of climate change on our communities and on people, and uh, and certainly I think that uh, we don't need to be creating products. We, we've got uh, just an an incredible capacity uh, to be to be creating um, materials and and goods. Uh, there's no need yeah. for us to be uh, creating ones that are intentionally breaking down. And I think that yeah. governments, this is exactly where government regulation uh, is and where it should be, um, yeah. is in making sure that uh, looking out for the interests of consumers and not having to needlessly waste. Adam, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for focusing on this issue. And uh, thank you to all of your listeners that are concerned about this. And I think the way that we get our federal and provincial uh, elected officials to listen is to is to email them and talk to them and, and let them know that this issue is important to you. Okay, it's time for dog training tips and tricks with one of our favorite guests, Brad Pattison, professional dog trainer, dog behaviorist consultant. HustleUpDogTraining.ca is his website. Brad has written a ton of books, including Brad Pattison Unleashed, Brad Pattison's Puppy Book. Hey, Brad, thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you very much for having me on today, Mike. Yeah, you bet. I I always appreciate your time. Brad, we got Halloween coming up here pretty soon, and this is the time of year. It's going to start soon. We're going to start hearing those fireworks, right? And we yeah. know that a lot of dogs don't like it one bit. You got any tips on uh, for that? Yeah, I'll, you know, you, th there's all these things like play music, and I used to tell people to do that all the time, try to isolate your dog into a quiet room. And you can do that to to a certain extent with fireworks. Uh, personally, with my own dog, Rocket, I need to drive her into the industrial area in Delta to escape the sounds of the fireworks because they're going off everywhere. So oh. the best thing you can do with your dog is keep it busy, keep it away from that noise, and you have to do what you gotta do. Some, some veterinarians will give Prozac and some other medication and whatnot step away from from that and just keep your dog busy keep it isolated you can crank the music if you need to um isolate your dog into a quiet room uh but you know maybe it's time that we move over to drone entertainment instead instead of firework entertainment in the skies you know yeah I've heard, I've heard that argument too it's pretty stuff it's pretty tough though to stop the fireworks at this time of year i mean it's going to happen no matter no matter what and for all those poor dogs out there who don't like it i mean my dog used to not like it very much when she was younger she's very hard of hearing now though so it seems to doesn't bother her as much anymore yeah and the crazy <laughs> thing is you know you can have fireworks going off and people are opening up their door to give candy to children when they come trick-or-treating, you want to have your dog on leash so it doesn't yeah. dart and bolt. And, if and um, you know, the other thing that I tell my clients in my dog training classes is they have to have an LED collar on their dog. So if you are going trick-or-treating with your dog, which I do not support, but if you are going mm. trick-or-treating with your dog, uh, make sure that you have uh, an LED collar on your dog so it's visible for traffic and other people and i'll just share one thing mike about why i do not agree with dogs going trick-or-treating because you have right. these tiny little kids running around in fun little costumes that are adorable 
But now you have this crazy looking dinosaur that's the size of three and a half feet that's coming at a dog and it freaks out. <laughs> and quite yeah. a few kids, you know, like quite a few kids get bit because they see these strange, odd creatures running around screaming, hooting and hollering. And then the dog is in trouble because the people took the dog trick or treating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of that, like speaking of having your dog out on a leash and, you know, an unfortunate situation of a, of a dog you know, bites someone, nobody wants to see that. What are, what would you say, Brad, about the expectations now when you're taking your dog out, you have your dog on a leash? What are the expectations now for people when they take their dog for a walk? That is a brilliant question. You know, in our day and age, our expectation is very low. We we look at a doggy in the window, for instance, and people think that's good enough and the dog gets to see people. And that's where expectation lies or give it food and the dog will do X, Y, Z. The expectation in our day and age should we as dog trainers and, and the whole industry and, and people in general should now step it up. So teach the dogs patience. Teach the dogs that when there's a baby stroller or other people coming on a sidewalk that the dog needs to move over. Teach the dog to have uh, a, a good sit command so when people are on bikes or wheelchairs or skateboards or whatever is zipping by that the dog just does a nice sit. And um, you know, raise the, the expectation on what your dog is capable of doing. So if you need to call your dog back immediately. Your dog should respond right away. One of the things that I'm seeing, Mike, in, in this day and age of dogs is since COVID, and I don't like the COVID conversation because it seems to be so negative, but since COVID, what we see happening with dogs is more dogs have less socialization and there's less of an expectation on how they need to behave and they're actually misbehaving more than ever. Mm, okay. How about if you take your dog to a store and you decide to tie your dog up outside while you go into a store? I know a lot of dogs have got that kind of separation anxiety. They will start to bark and whine. And I always think it's a little bit risky too if someone takes your dog. What, what do you think of that? Okay, let's start with the the dog and, and the store. First of all, we need to be, dog owners, in my opinion, need to be very responsible and cognizant about how their dogs behave and how they may or may not disrupt, or how they may or, yeah, may or may not disrupt that person's business. So people are at a cafe and you have a dog that's barking, whining, making a, a bunch of noise. That is now harming this person's business. That's not cool. Okay, so you so people need to get a grip on their dogs and start training them properly. And this is one of the things that aggravate me to no end is you'll see two people on a date or they're having a nice dinner. And now there's this dog barking, 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 barking while these people are trying to enjoy. It's your responsibility when you hear that dog bark the first time, you got to dash out there and resolve the issue. And if you yeah. can't resolve that issue immediately right there then it's going to take some work. That's where you find somebody like myself or one of my CTEs. But it's important that we don't just allow these dogs to, to use this, this space as an opera hall to make a ton of noise. <laughs> and it does take a lot of work to, to fix these dogs that are, are making this, this nuisance. Now, the, the whole thing about, well, my dog is going to get stolen. Let's just back that down. That does not happen very much. It happened to Lady Gaga's dogs, and oh my God, it made the news everywhere, right? But we heard it 20,000 times. That's not 20,000 dogs being stolen. It's one isolated situation that was put into the media because Lady Gaga is a well-known person. She's a celebrity. Okay. All right, my guest is Brad Pattison, hustleupdogtraining.ca. Brad is a professional dog trainer. Let's go to your phone calls. Julie in Burnaby. Hi, Julie. Oh, hi there. Um, we hi. have a very fearful dog. He came from Mexico. We've had him for about six months, and we have difficulty walking him down our street, and at the end of our street there's a traffic, so he's afraid of traffic noises. And we've sat at bus stops, and we've sat at the corner, and we've treated him with uh, chicken and, and ham to get him down the street, and we don't know what else to do. Oh, boy. Okay, Brad, so, your thoughts? Yeah. Thanks for saying, oh, boy. Oh, boy is right. Do you know how old this dog is? Uh, he's about 15 and a half months. 
Okay, so we for, please get rid of the food. That's just a, a little bit ridiculous to be carrying around that kind of food. Um, do you is your dog allowed on the couch and and bark in the house and go on the bed and such? He's allowed on the on the couch and the bed, but we don't allow him to bark in the house. Okay, so you have some rules, but you don't have rules to cover off everything. So I would start to lay down some more rules for this dog because that's what it needs. And it sounds like it's uh, it it feels insecure because it doesn't know that you are actually the alpha and you have control of the different situations. What you're starting to do is really good. Dump the treats, though, because the food, that's not going to do anything. Um, it's going to be ridiculous to be carrying food around every single day like that. So that's just just save your money. And what I can do is if you message me at hustleupdogtraining.ca, I can give you more information and we can possibly set up a private. Okay, Julie, okay. good good luck with that. Do you find, Brad, like rescue dogs from out of the country like Mexico, do they, do they typically have behavioral problems? That's a great question. There are that, that do, and yeah. then there, there are many that don't. It, it all depends on how they've been raised in Mexico and if they were re released from their parents. So if a, the parents died prematurely yeah. then and left the litter before six weeks, seven weeks, then those dogs typically have more issues because they didn't learn a lot from the mom and the dad and possibly the siblings. So with, we, with dogs that come from other countries, quite often the first mistake people make is they put a cloak of sadness and depression and poor victim on the dog, whereas they really need to step up and be a proper dog owner and say, okay, let's go, little Charlie. We're going to do this and this and this, and you're going to learn, learn, learn. Not, oh, you're a fragile little thing. So this, your caller beforehand, they're trying to actively do things. It's just not the right method. Okay, let's go to Mark on the line in Surrey. Hi, Mark, go ahead. Hey, how are you this morning, guys? Um, I know we're talking about loud noises and uh, nervous, anxious dogs around the Halloween what about the opposite end of the spectrum? Just come in to uh, have a little tiny 12-week-old, very deaf corgi. What would you suggest in a type of training regime for a little deaf dog? Okay, so I love this question because uh, I don't know any dog trainers that actually specialize in that other than myself and some of my CTEs. What I would what I would say to you right away is make sure you get a proper collar. So I would suggest a martingale. Get get a six foot leash. Put that around your waist. Have that dog go wherever you go. Okay. The, the reason I, I want you to do this is so now the dog understands that there's a bond and it needs to follow you for safety. And then from there, uh, do not use food because then that's all the dog is going to be doing things for and you can't afford to have a mistake because you can never depend on your voice. So we need to connect this dog physically by your movement, by doing umbilical, so this dog is focusing on you and wherever you go. And if you have other people in the household, you also need to get them involved in doing this exercise as well. Make sure that you, you set the same rules as you would with a dog that can hear. So obviously no furniture, couches, et cetera, et cetera. And make sure that you maintain a high expectation for this dog. Um, I've worked with many deaf dogs and deaf dogs can be amazing as long as you create that bond between you and mm. the dog, not you, food, and the dog. Mark, good luck with that. Tanya in Surrey. Hi, Tanya, go ahead. Hi. Okay, our dog is perfect in every way except if there's shadows or something sparkly. Then she won't, she doesn't hear you. It's, it's, she just becomes absorbed in this. Shadows? Shadow? Go ahead, Brad. She goes after the shadow or the spark, or whatever happens to be shiny in the air. Like, she'll, okay. she'll actually bite at the house. Yeah, so that's an obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and how old is your dog? Three or four years old? No, she'll be five this month. Okay. And um, when did this start? Was it after the age of two? Yes, it was. Okay. So the reason I'm asking is what type of exercise has this dog been getting in its life? And what type of expectation do you have on your dog? Well, she has walks. Um, not as many as she should because she just she just doesn't do it. You know? Okay. Yeah. Oh, so your walks are the are they the same type of walk? 
Yeah, we well, yeah. no, we go in different directions all the time. Yeah. So in a nutshell, your dog is bored and it's creating its own environment of entertainment and uh, stimulation. So what okay. I would do is I would definitely we should talk further because this is a very interesting behavioral issue that you have. It's not common, but I have seen it. And I can certainly give you some tips on how to move forward and go through some protocols that you would need to put into play. Tanya, okay. thank you for thank you for the call, Tanya. Move up. We've got so many calls here. Jay in Lions Bay. Hi, Jay. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, similar sure. to Julie, uh, we have a, a rescue dog we picked up uh, about two months ago. Bonds with my wife and, and, and on the side, great with the kids. But when we're all together as a family, she's really aggressive and she's barking at me, like primarily. I don't know if there's been some kind of trauma but I'm trying no. to work my way through to how, to how to bridge that gap. Like, what, what would you suggest? Okay, well, here's what I can tell you is there, this may be, this could be a revert, uh, irreversible behavior. So some dogs that are coming from other countries or even dogs in our own country that are removed from the litter too early will have aggression towards males, men or boys. And what that means is as the dog progresses in age, so past three into five into seven years of age, then you are running into a higher, higher risk category of being bit by the dog. And that can be any male, all right? So one of the things that I would have to look at is what are the triggers? What is happening? What's the stimulation? What kind of bond and relationship do you have? Are there negotiations going on in the household? And uh, what is the dog? Who is, who is the weak link in the house that we'd also have to focus on? So definitely right. please connect with me um, and I can go through much more detail and much more information for you about this because I don't want to see you right, guys that, give up that, because it doesn't like you. No, we don't. And that's amazing, amazing feedback. I really appreciate that because it's ironic you say that because it's usually triggered when it's myself and my son that are working together either on homework or doing a project or on the couch together. So okay. I, I'd love to reach out and connect with you. Thank okay, you, thanks. Jay, for the call. Uh, so, Brad, what is what is the best way to get in touch with you? you got 30 seconds here. Info at hustleupdogtraining.ca. Info at hustleupdogtraining.ca. Brad, thanks for coming on today. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.